You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 179 of the Common Descent Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about paleontology, evolution, life history, the kind of stuff like that. This episode's topic is thermoregulation. Thermoregulation. Which means that we're talking about the ways that animals maintain and manage their body temperatures. This uh, really means we're going to be talking a lot about the terms warm-blooded and cold-blooded. Yes. What they actually mean, where the nuance is, what are the various strategies that different species have for their own thermoregulatory strategies. And then we'll hop into the fossil record and look at how do we determine what ancient species were doing what And what do we know about the evolution of certain thermoregulatory strategies? Mostly that means we're going to be talking about endothermy. Yes. uh, One of the hallmarks of, quote, warm-bloodedness. It's going to be a lot of breaking down terms and going across the animal kingdom and looking at different ways that groups do stuff. And uh, as we'd love to do here on the podcast, it's going to be a lot of us bringing up a term and then pointing out all the fun exceptions to it. Yep. We love to take out all the boxes that... Uh, something has been put into and then slowly unfold the box and shuffle the pieces around a bit more. So this will be a lot of fun. Hey, this episode topic was also requested. This subject came requested to us by Finn, Jessica, Z, and Rachel. Thank you all for requesting. I've been looking forward to this episode topic for a long time, so I'm excited to get into it. No, thank you. It's a fun topic. Before we get into that, some announcements. First and foremost, as always, we have a Patreon. The podcast is possible because of the support that we get from our patrons. They allow us to do all of our science education endeavors in all of their forms for the podcast. If you are a patron, you get goodies. The goodies depend on what tier of patronage you're at. We recently added some new upper tiers, which is very exciting with exciting new goodies. But even at all tiers, but even at other tiers, you can get bonus content live streams with us, the ability to ask questions. There'll be some patron questionage at the end of this episode, as usual. And at a certain level, you get a shout-out here at the top of the podcast. This episode, we would like to welcome to the Patreon Norbert, Jesse, and Lucy. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us. Hey, dear listeners, if you would like to support us in a financial sense, then allow us to continue doing the podcasty stuff that we do. Consider joining the Patreon. Right now is actually an excellent time to do that, because in celebration of this year's milestone of 500 patrons, which we have since surpassed, oh yeah, we are doing a giveaway. We will be selecting a few patrons to win uh, fabulous prizes, including honorary membership to our top patron tier. We will be making that announcement on our anniversary live stream at the end of January. If you'd like to be included and eligible to win fabulous prizes, become a patron before the end of the year. Yeah. There will also be other cool stuff we'll talk about on that anniversary live stream late January. Stay tuned for more details on that. But before that, 
uh, before the start of the year thing, we have an end of the year thing. <laughs> Every year we like to do our end of the year Q&A where we take as many questions as our fan base would like to submit to us and then answer as many of them as we have time for in a several hours long question answering extravaganza. It's the, our end of the year marathon. It is. And it's <laughs> they are... By far the biggest <laughs> episodes we put out for anything. And they're so much fun. The Q&A form uh, opened this year on November 10th. It will close on December 10th. There is a link down in the episode description. It's also linked on the homepage of our website. Don't miss your chance. Submit a question. Our question list has been growing rapidly, and we would love to see it grow as much as possible. Yes. By the time this episode comes out, there won't be a whole ton of time left for the form, so uh, check it out. Yep, yep. And that's the announcements, uh, which means we can move on to the news. Every episode, we like to pick some stories from science news related to the kinds of things we like to talk about. Will, start us off with some news. Happily, I have some news about a fossil robot. Or a robot of a fossil. Okay, that makes more sense than the other way around. (laughs) That was trying to help us learn about how some ancient life moved. All right. Yeah. This is research by Richard DeSatnik et al. in PNAS. And the article we'll be linking to in the blog is by Caitlin Landrum on the Carnegie Mellon University website. So understanding the movement of ancient life can be very difficult. Some things it's easier when it's something we have very similar representatives of today. Sure. Like an ancient dog is probably much easier to figure out how it was living compared to dogs today. But as you go farther back, you often come across groups that we don't have modern analogs for. One such group that has gotten a lot of attention for movement is some early echinoderms, particularly the pleurocystidids. These were in kinoderms around a time, about 450 million years ago. But about 500 million years ago is when we see in kinoderms to start to shift from a stationary lifestyle to mobile lifestyles. Mm-hmm. And this group is thought to be one of the earliest to start to move around with muscular systems. Yeah, echinoderms, we think of often things like urchins and sea stars, which can move around. But they mm-hmm. also include stuff like blastoids and other things that are more stationary. Yes, yeah, so... There had to be a shift from non-mobile to mobile, and we don't know a lot of information about exactly how that happened. Because, you know, early life, you tend to lack fossils, and that's soft tissue stuff a lot of the time. And a lot of these, even the moving parts would have been soft. So not just the muscles, but some of the animal itself. Yes. So, looking at these echinoderms, they decided to look in, to try out a field called paleobionics which is a fairly new field. Like, this is fairly uh, recent that this has been used that aims... It is a field of study aiming to use soft botics, which are soft robots. Mm -hmm. So instead of using the hinged joints and, you know, hard parts that we think of with a robot, it's using, like, silicon and soft rubbers for the moving parts with either cables or pressure, you know, air pressure or fluid movement to move it. Hydraulic pressure. Exactly. This is aiming to reconstruct or at least mimic as close as we can the body structure of these ancient organisms and then run it through some tests to see what movements would have been possible. Because sometimes even if you 
looking at it, it's hard to actually visualize realistically how it would move yeah. without being able to just see something like it moving. Yeah. And it's often hard to know if it moved in this way, would it actually break itself in half? Yes. Or would that be efficient at all? Or is the right. actually most efficient that doesn't seem like it makes sense is this weird movement? Yes. So they developed a soft robot for this group. They called it Rombot because it is part of the Rombofer class of Enchinoderms. Yeah, fun. Using fossil evidence as a guide for their design. It's a combination of 3D printed parts. And there's pictures of the robot in the news. Like the body is a 3D chunk, you know, 3D printed part. But then the arms, so to speak, are polymers that mimic the flexible structures of the, the limbs. And they developed what was called a biomimetic soft robot test bed. They have the soft robot and they had computer simulations to work in tangent with each other to test out and simulate potential movement patterns. And they found that it sure does seem like they would have been able to be mobile, particularly using a muscular stem at the back, quote unquote, of the organism's, the animal's body that would have moved it forward in a kind of sweeping motion. With the, the, you know, tail, right. if you're looking at it from <laughs> our, our... Right, quote unquote, <laughs> yes. episode 151 yep, for yep. more about tails. That back appendage in a sweeping motion could have moved it forward in the most effective, you know, most efficient motion. So that is a more likely movement that they could have been using. We can't confirm it was what they were doing, mm -hmm. but of the movements we found that got them forward, that was the most right. efficient. The math checks out. And that... Typically is what you see animals doing because you don't want to waste energy. <laughs> right. So that is a likely movement they at least could have used. Maybe it was only for escape or something, but could be. They were also able to look at things about what this would suggest about the evolution for their movement. Extending the stem increases the efficiency of movement. Mm. So that gives us ideas of what natural selection might have been selecting for if this is indeed how they were moving. So that's another aspect of this uh, uh, paleobionics that you can look at if that is how they're moving what things are the critical factors right now we can actually see what parts of the organism are more important than we might have realized when it was just a still fossil this also of course has implications for reverse engineering biotic structures into robotic uses is if we can understand you know what the efficient movements are and looking at extinct body forms yeah, we so often in technology, we we do a, a biomimicry. We mm -hmm. look for biological structures as inspiration. With, with these kind of studies, we can add to that catalog things that aren't around anymore. Exactly. And they said one of the biggest remaining questions for this, you know, looking at this particular group is what kind of surface they would have been moving over because that yeah. will greatly affect. So testing various substrates, sand and mud and so forth will be potentially the next step in looking at and potentially testing this robot, Rombot. As you mentioned at the start, so often in paleontology, we are looking for modern day comparisons mm -hmm. to make with ancient creatures to try to understand them. It is a very futuristic sort of thing to say that, well, we were trying to study this ancient animal. There are no analogs in the world today so we made one yeah that's pretty cool well and it, it comes to things where we've done this with other organisms like trying to figure out how quickly big dinosaurs would move by like mm -hmm. tracking big animals today but nothing 
stands quite like a dinosaur does. So we make digital models Mm -hmm. and such of them. We could get to the point where we could say, all right, we've now made a robot with advanced enough musculature that it can hold itself up like a T-Rex. Right. And then we sent it down the course and we found... Now let's see how it moves. This was the max speed before it fell apart. So science fiction authors, uh, get on it (laughs) uh, before it's not fiction anymore. (laughs) Uh, And like Will said, if you want to see the images of this rombot, check out that link uh, in the blog. Well, my first bit of news is not similar to that news. I'm talking about bird tracks. Ooh. This is fun. It's this is walking. It's movement. It's, well, yeah, it's movement. We're <laughs> looking at ancient movement and uh, things that are not always easy to fossilize. In fact, in this case, uh, particularly unusual things to fossilize. Ooh. This is research in the journal Plus One by Anthony Martin et al. And in the blog post, we will link to an article about this research by Riley Black in Smithsonian Magazine. Birds were very abundant in the Cretaceous period, and fossils of Cretaceous birds are pretty widespread and abundant themselves in northern continents. North America and Asia in particular, we have a really good Cretaceous bird fossil record. However, southern continents are quite the opposite. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The land masses that were once part of Gondwana, South America, Africa, India, Australia, Antarctica... In these landmasses, there is very little Cretaceous bird fossil record. For example, in Australia, the authors note, there are some isolated bones, a few feathers, and two footprints. (laughs) And that is the entire Cretaceous bird fossil record of Australia. Insane. Yeah, which is really, and it raises lots of questions about what what's the deal? What's going on? What were birds up to? And why don't we have any of their remains? Because they're doing great there now. Right. (laughs) This study adds substantially to the Australian Cretaceous bird fossil record, reporting a track site in Victoria in Australia with abundant tracks, including 27 bird footprints. Wow. So increasing the number of known Cretaceous bird footprints in Australia by almost 15 times. Wow. These come from the Wanthagi Formation, which is early Cretaceous, between 128 to 120 million years ago. These are floodplain deposits, which is to say near a river where you would periodically get overflowing of the banks of the river, which deposits these layers of mud mud and silt and stuff. Yeah. Great places for footprints to be left behind. These 27 prints have distinctive features of birds, Both the paper and the article talk about the fact that when you're in the Cretaceous, it can be tricky to tell the difference between bird footprints and just small theropod footprints. Makes sense. Birds are distinguished from a few things. Number one, they're small. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have their three weight-bearing toes. The digits are very thin. Yes. And the toes are widely spaced. The angles of the toes are pretty wide. The article specified uh, typically over 90 degrees. Oh, wow. Which is something you see in birds. Oh, I didn't realize that. They also often have sharp claws, and some of the prints have the impression of the hallux, which is that fourth toe that kind of sticks off the back. All of this indicates that we are looking at these 27 bird footprints, and among them, the authors identified eight different morphologies. Wow. Eight different ichnoforms, so different sizes, different shapes, that seem to indicate eight different types of birds are represented in this track site. 
Cool. Uh, one of them was pointed out that it was it looked similar to something like a heron, like different lifestyles of birds here. They noted that these are probably an antiornaths, mm-hmm. which is an ancient, uh, now extinct group of birds that were in many ways pretty similar to our birds today. So this is important for a whole bunch of reasons. First and foremost, like we said, almost no bird fossil record in southern continents. So this is a huge addition to our understanding of what birds were doing in the south, southern hemisphere, in the southern continents during the Cretaceous period. Also, the oldest body fossils of birds in Australia, the oldest skeletal remains or other an anatomical body remains, are in this same geologic formation, but higher up mm. in a younger division of the Cretaceous. So these are also the oldest bird fossils in Australia. Wow. Which is pretty cool. Uh, they are also the oldest Gondwanan bird fossils. So this is the oldest southern bird fossils. And not just a little southern. At this time, this region was a polar region. Yeah, yeah. This was quite close, right, in what today we would consider the Antarctic region. Yes. Polar region, which means this is an area that would have experienced long, cold, dark winters. This is interesting because this is our earliest evidence that birds were inhabiting polar regions. Yep, yep, yep. This is about 120 million years ago. We didn't know that they had uh, spread that far at this time, and not only living there, but apparently a lot of them were living there. Yeah. This wasn't like one species had figured it out. This is several species. The fact that bird tracks are seen on multiple sedimentary layers in this deposit also indicates that this wasn't just a one-time thing. Yes. That this was year after year. Potentially, they point out, given that this is a polar region, we could be seeing evidence of of a place where birds were hanging out for part of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This could have been a migratory space. Yes. Where they would come in here in the spring or summer and leave in fall and winter when it starts to get cold and dark. Yeah, unbearable. Uh, They also, they do point out, uh, sort of alongside this notion, that some of the other trace fossils in this deposit are like burrows of invertebrates and stuff the kind of things the birds might have been eating yeah so it paints this lovely picture of like spring comes to the early cretaceous south pole and all the little bugs start coming out and this migration of birds comes in and starts eating all of the little creepy crawlies cool Uh, now that it's very you know obviously it's hard to say for sure that that was happening yes we don't there's a lot we don't know about these birds But this could very feasibly be a migratory pathway, Mm -hmm. and it is for sure an ecosystem rich in birds in a polar region during the early Cretaceous. Very cool. Gaps in the fossil record like this are always so interesting because it's, as we mentioned before, you know, in, in similar examples, it's always hard to know, is this because you weren't there or you didn't preserve or we just haven't looked in the right area or type of deposit yet yeah and they discuss that a bunch in this paper yeah are are we seeing a bias in the record mm -hmm. a bias in the ecosystems or a bias in our research because like this is a a bunch all at once to find yes so it could indicate we may have just not been either looking for the right evidence or just not finding the evidence that did preserve yeah 
So yeah, I, I'd be very curious to see so we what gotta future look, we gotta look more future digs find. So if nothing else, this tells us that birds were more widespread and more successful earlier than we had realized. Very cool. By a this is only like thirty million years after the first birds show up. They are potentially all over the world. Yes, and in places that would have been tricky, like yeah. unique, odd environments, polar regions. Very cool. Well, for my next news, I am now the one without a segue, because mine is about tasting bitter stuff and finding evidence of it in sharks. Yeah, I've got no... No. Nope. I have no connection to nope, that. That's also about science. <laughs> this was also published. This is researched by Mike Behrens et al. in PNAS, and the article is a press release by the University of Cologne in phys.org. So, tasting bitter stuff is... A fairly common ability because many plants and animals produce toxic chemicals. And one of the key ways to detect those very often, not for every single one, but very commonly, is bitter taste receptors. Mm -hmm. And those typically are called taste 2 receptors or T2Rs. This is how we taste bitter foods and flavors. And it's common in many other vertebrates. So this is a, a fairly consistent thing. But it had been thought for a long time that it was only found in bony vertebrates. Mm. Uh, there's even like large groups of them known in coelacanths and you know, our one of our closest cousin fishes. But it was thought to not be outside of bony vertebrates. But part of this may be because molecular research into things like sharks has not been as good as one would like. Their genomes are often relatively large and therefore harder to sequence. And so that might have been holding back from us discovering evidence outside of bony vertebrates right. into the cartilaginous fish. This research took a look at some recent sequences of cartilaginous fish genomes, as our techniques have gotten better in recent history, and they were able to identify T2R genes in 12 cartilaginous fish species. Nine sharks, two skates, and a sawfish. Ooh. Altogether, this likely represents a sister clade to bony fish mm -hmm. of the T2R genes found in bony fish, which are known. And only one gene was found in each species. So they only had a single gene coding for these bitter taste receptors. Not a suite of genes, one single gene. So a simplified version of this tasting ability. Yeah, so just one little bit of DNA saying, <laughs> here's what bitter tastes this like. Is, this is a bitter thing. Yep. So they took a closer look at two species, the cat shark and bamboo shark, to look at the lignin repertoires that this gene codes for and what bitter substances it would respond to. And yeah, they, I would assume not every bitter tasting thing is the same. Exactly. So you're going to have a suite of different things that a suite of genes might pick up. And the more genes you have probably can code for a wider variety. So they wanted to see what bitter tastes are common between... For instance, us and sharks yeah. or other vertebrate genes and sharks. They tested 94 human bitter taste substances and identified 11 that could activate the shark receptors. Okay. This included things like bile acid, amarogentin, which is one of the bitterest substances we can taste, also triggered the strongest reaction in them. Okay. So a similar reaction across some substances. They also know that some of these can also activate receptors in the coelacanth. So there's even overlap between other bony vertebrates. They also 
noted that the shark receptors would respond to both androgenous steroids and xenobiotic compounds. They don't go into detail about what those are, but the important thing is that in other bony vertebrates, we have separate receptors for those two. Oh, okay. And the shark's receptors responded to both. Interesting. So over the course of vertebrate history, there's been specialization in genes for tasting for detecting different substances. Yes, and the shark receptor is doing dual duty, while other groups have a receptor for each of those compounds. Yeah. They also noted that some of the subsets of the lignans in the shark receptors are shared with more basal bony fish. All of this together indicates that the shark receptor likely is a representation or very similar to the ancestral gene. Yeah. And also showing a, at least suggested, strong amount of conservation. Like, that it has not changed since there is still so much overlap. Yeah, not only that this these taste receptors are present in cartilaginous fish, which it sounds like is new information. Yep, we did not suspect that. But that they have a lot in common with our taste receptors across all vertebrates. So this seems to have shown up early, and a lot of it hasn't changed very much. Yeah, so the lignin repertoire, the amount of things they're using to detect bitter tastes in sharks, might be what vertebrates started with yeah and, and diversified from since expanded into a whole bunch of receptors for a whole bunch of different tastes which has suggestions for that at some point we went from that dual purpose receptor to a mm-hmm. single two set receptor system and other suggestions about our ev- evolution of taste yeah it wouldn't be surprising to me if that transition from simple taste to more complex taste coincided with vertebrates moving up onto land mm-hmm. because that's where the plants are. Yes. That's where you get a whole diversity of plants. I'd, I'd be interested to know if there is a correlation between the diversity of plants over time and the diversity of these taste receptors. That's really interesting. Absolutely. Well, continuing the trend of newses that have nothing to do with each other, <laughs> I've got news about early dinosaur eggs and babies. Yep, I got nothing. Yeah, that, that's, that's also paleontology. This <laughs> research is published by Feng Lu Han et al. in National Science Review, and we will link uh, in the blog post to a press release on Eureka Alert from the Chinese Academy of Sciences. This paper identifies a new dinosaur species. Cool. Named Qianlong Shouhu. It is a sauropodomorph, so that is the group of dinosaurs closely related to sauropods, your Diplodocus and Brachiosaurus long neck, long tails but within this earlier cluster that includes stuff like Platyosaurus and Massospondylus, which are often large, long tails, long-ish necks, sometimes quadrupedal, sometimes bipedal, this early group. Yep, yep. This one is from the early Jurassic of southwest China. It is described here from three adult skeletons, uh, which is a pretty good find for the first discovery of a new species. The dinosaurs, uh, they noted, would have been about one ton, about six meters long or 20 feet long, which is pretty on par for some early sauropodomorphs. Not bad. And the body proportions suggest that it was likely facultatively bipedal. So it could have done walking on four legs, potentially, but also would have been able, most likely, to walk around on its hind limbs. Which is pretty cool. Yes. But in addition, it, it's you know that there's something special when the this is a new species known from three skeletons is the thing I get out of the way right off the bat. Yep. <laughs> because next to these three adult specimens 
are five nests with eggs in them. Which is pretty exciting. That's pretty cool. So a new species discovered alongside their nests. The egg clutches in these nests range from three up to 16 eggs. Okay. uh, Which they did note is fewer than other early sauropodomorphs. Although it's also possible these are incomplete clutches. Yes. That they might not all be preserved there. The eggs themselves are about 10 centimeters in diameter. So about four inches. Also a bit larger than those other early sauropodomorphs, which would make the smaller egg clutches make sense. Yeah, if you're having bigger eggs. If that is, in fact, uh, true. And six of those eggs have embryos inside of them. Yay! So this is a really, this is an incredible find. This this is a red letter day. This is awesome. These are among the, or this is among the earliest records of adult dinosaurs preserved alongside nests with eggs in them. Cool. And there's all sorts of cool stuff that they were able to infer and examine about these eggs and nests. One thing is that all the embryos they were able to examine were at similar developmental stages. Okay, yeah, yeah. So like the skeletons were at a similar growth stage. They were a similar size, which suggests that these dinosaurs were laying and hatching their eggs simultaneously. Yeah. That they were laying all the eggs and then the eggs were all hatching around the same time. Yeah, that it wasn't one nest and then a second nest later and then a third nest. They were probably built and laid down close together. Right. And since we have multiple adults and multiple nests, this is strong support for colonial nesting. Yeah. That these dinosaurs were gathering together to nest in the same place at the same time, which is very cool because we also see that in the latest Cretaceous. So yes. That, this is across the history of dinosaurs. They noted that the posture of the embryos is interesting. Like the, the, the pose they're in within the egg mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has some similarities to birds, but also has some similarities to crocs and other early dinosaurs. Oh. Uh, I, I didn't read super detail into what implications that has, but there does seem to have been a shift over time in how embryos are positioned within the egg. Cool. That's something that I never even give much thought thought to yeah that the embryo position could be phylogenetically informative yeah cool and the proportions of the bodies of these embryos by their analysis uh, they suggest that they were likely quadrupedal and not able to stand on their hind limbs that might be something that came later on in life just like us just like us. <laughs> they, these walked on four legs in the morning and three leg, two legs in the afternoon. Um, which is, is interesting because in the Hadrosaurs episode, I noted that there are some species that are thought to have been able to walk on their hind limbs when they were younger mm-hmm. and then became more quadrupedal as they got older. This is kind of the opposite, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and, and it, it makes sense that the, a smaller one would be able to stand up easier than a big one. Yeah. So the fact that these seem the opposite... It gives me, I want to learn more about, like, were their limbs doing something interesting or weird? Yeah. Cool. But the actual headline <laughs> for this study is... We're a, still not there we're yet. still not there yet. Is about the eggs. They examined the structure of the egg shell in particular to get a sense of what kind of eggs these are. Mm-hmm. Amniote eggs are classified into three general categories. Soft-shelled eggs, like we see in snakes and lizards, for example. Hard-shelled eggs, like birds. Mm -hmm. And leathery eggs, like turtles and things like that. The authors do note that this is an oversimplification, but 
Yeah, you know, for, for general purposes. These dinosaur eggs, the structure of the shell, and also they noted the fragmentation pattern, oh. like the way the eggs break, yeah. is consistent with leathery eggs, cool. similar to turtles. They didn't actually mention crocs specifically, mm-hmm. so I don't know mm-hmm. where crocs supposedly fall in this. I think crocs tend to have a harder shell, like not as tough as bird, I don't mm-hmm. think, but I do think they have a, a, a shell shell. With this information, they then did a big phylogenetic analysis of reptiles, specifically looking at egg structure to try to get a sense of, are there patterns we can see in the evolution of eggs? Their analysis supported the notion that the earliest dinosaurs, because these are some of the earliest ones we have, these are, this is a very early branching group of dinosaurs, with these to help out, this suggests that the earliest dinosaur eggs were likely leathery eggs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that were relatively small and elliptical. Yeah. So sort of long, which is what we see in a lot of uh, reptiles today. Yes. They noted that this might also just be an ancestral thing to archosaurs, to turtles, to mm-hmm. a lot of these major groups of reptiles. They also found a very complex pattern of evolution of these egg features across the dinosaur family tree and other reptiles. I won't get into a whole bunch of, they go into a whole bunch of detail on the paper, (laughs) but for example, uh, several lineages of reptiles, according to their analysis, show evidence of eggs getting bigger over time Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as the lineage goes on. Others, the eggs get smaller and some, the features go back and forth. Interesting. Similar patterns were noticed with things like the shape of the eggs, like theropod eggs get very elongate. Mm -hmm. And in some groups, I think they mentioned oviraptorosaurs, they get very long. Yes. Very sort of elliptical. But then in birds, they're more rounded. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of a, there's sort of a back and forth. Same sort of situation with shell thickness. This is interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of implications all over there. Oh, yeah. But one of the reasons they point out that this is interesting is that Previous studies have suggested that the features we see in bird eggs showed up gradually over time, over the course of dinosaur evolution, until you had the bird egg. Mm -hmm. This analysis supports the idea that actually there was a lot of complex changes in different features back and forth. It wasn't just a gradual line to what we see in birds. Yes. Birds are one of a whole diversity of different forms that we get across dinosaurs. Yeah, one option of dinosaur egg. Yeah, and some of the things birds do are actually reversals from some earlier trends. So it, it reveals this sort of very complex evolution of eggs over time throughout dinosaurs and gives a some support to what the earliest dinosaur eggs might have looked like. Which makes a ton of sense because we see a ton of variety in bird eggs based on their yeah. lifestyle, their body shape, their size and the amount of chicks they're going to have. So it makes tons of sense that dinosaurs would have been experimenting evolutionarily all over the place with eggs. Yeah. And all of that, in addition to being the discovery of three dinosaur skeletons with their nests, there's a whole bunch of cool stuff that is inferred from this study. Very, very cool. Yeah, that is an unreasonably awesome fossil. That's really cool. It Every point of it is just fantastic i i am excited to see the next research paper just on those fossils because you right. <laughs> like there's so much you can do with all of that and i'm sure there's awesome things to find still yeah hey you know what else dinosaurs did 
they regulated their body temperatures. Oh, they did. They did. And that is also something that uh, science has uh, is interested in. <laughs> uh, hey, the news is done. And that uh, seamless segue brings us into our main discussion. Uh, after the break, we're going to get into our main topic where we will start out by talking about why temperature is important in the first place. And then uh, some voc- some fun with vocabulary. Yes, I promise it's gonna. I'm gonna have fun. <laughs> I had fun. One of the papers that I read in preparing for this episode discussion made a really interesting point, and it was that. Our universe and our planet experiences a very wide range of temperatures. Yes. Right. Like the vacuum of space is something like three Kelvin Mm -hmm. and then stars are way more than that. (laughs) And even on our planet, you know, you go from the poles to the tropics and we've got lava and just all sorts of temperatures exist within our surroundings. But life tends to exist in a relatively narrow range of temperature. And the reason for that is because life is all deep down chemical and physical reactions, which are temperature dependent. Yes, absolutely. If you get down to zero degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit, that's the temperature at which water freezes. Mm -hmm. And that's bad news for cells that have a lot of water in them. Yep. Ice crystals are going to get in the way of stuff. And then on the other hand, that paper uh, made the point that If you get up to and over about 45 degrees Celsius, which is at 113 Fahrenheit, at that temperature, a lot of the important enzymes in cells start to fall apart. Yeah. They denature. They lose their shape. Yeah. They just can't maintain their connections because of the heat. Yes. And in different cells, different tissues, different functions of organisms, bodies tend to have optimal temperatures at what your muscles do, what your brain does, what all the things that life does, those reactions tend to have ideal temperatures to function at. Well, and, and this is something we deal with on a daily basis very often. Like, this is why you can sterilize stuff by boiling it. Yes. Because <laughs> life can't handle those certain temperatures. Like, there's no open flame there. That's just hot. It's just hot. And that hot is enough to make that life no longer life. Yes. So, organisms tend to spend a whole lot of time trying to be the right temperature, or Mm -hmm. uh, probably more accurately, trying not to be the wrong temperature. (laughs) All of the behaviors and mechanisms, the whole process of organisms managing their temperature is thermoregulation. Mm -hmm. This is something that is part of all life as we know it, this need to be at the right temperature to function properly. Now... When we talk about thermoregulation in organisms, I'm going to start us off with two terms that are the terms that I think most people are probably familiar with. These are our elementary school terms. Animals, in regards to body temperature, are typically referred to as cold-blooded and warm-blooded. Yep. Uh, This is a very familiar concept. Uh, This is how we learn about animals. It's one of the ways that animals are distinguished from each other, right? Mammals and birds are warm-blooded animals, everybody else is cold-blooded, or at the very least, everything else that has blood or something (laughs) kind of like blood is cold-blooded. Like sponges, I don't think you would call cold-blooded. But like an insect. Yes. Yeah, that's a cold-blooded. That has, has quote-unquote, 
Blood. Blood. Now, what these terms are actually referring to, the reason that those terms sort of come about, is they're talking about the temperature that those animals' bodies tend to be. Cold-blooded animals, turtles, snakes, frogs, fish, tend to have relatively lower body temperatures. Warm-blooded animals, mammals and birds, tend to have relatively high body temperatures. Some of you may be wondering, relative to what? Well, to each other. It's a very arbitrary... Yeah, these are warmer, these are colder. Yep. But there is a consistency there. Uh, This is a very simplified way to describe animals by their body temperature, but it's also relatively useful. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like what we talked about with herbivores versus carnivores back in episode 173. Simplified, useful, but for a discussion that's going to go into detail... We have to break these terms down a bit and really explore what they mean. Good starting point, not where we're going to end. Yes. (laughs) So let's get to where we're going to end. Let's break down, because warm-blooded and cold-blooded tend to refer to a collection of things. Mm -hmm. Warm-blooded animals tend to be three things. They tend to be endothermic, homeothermic, and tachymetabolic. I'm going to talk about what all those things mean. Cold-blooded animals are the opposite. They are ectothermic, poikilothermic, and bradymetabolic. Those three things refer respectively to the source of temperature, the source of heat, the stability of body temperature, and the metabolic rate of the organism. Endotherms versus ectotherms refers to different places that the heat tends to come from. Endotherms, their heat, body heat is mostly internally generated. Mm -hmm. This is why humans and cats and dogs and birds tend to be warm regardless of the situation around them because that temperature is coming from inside. Yes. Whereas ectotherms, your classic crocs and snakes and turtles and stuff, most of their body heat is coming from outside. They have to go to a hot place in order to get warm. Yeah, they have to literally go warm up. Yes. The second piece is stability of temperature. Homeothermic organisms tend to have a pretty constant body temperature. We humans tend to be pretty constant at about 37 degrees Celsius, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. We don't vary quite a bit. Well, that's why taking temperature is such a an easy measure of your health, because if that fluctuates, that's weird. Yes, <laughs> it's supposed to stay where it is. Mm-hmm. Cold-blooded animals tend to be poikilothermic, which means that their temperature varies quite a bit. Uh, which makes total sense considering that they have to get it from outside. Yeah, they're chasing the heat. A lot of the time. <laughs> and finally, the third factor is the metabolic rate. Metabolism refers to the reactions inside of our bodies that are creating energy, creating the things that we need to operate. A lot of the energy that fuels our met- metabolism is temperature, mm-hmm. is heat. We need to be warmed up in order to be able to do these reactions. So metabolic rate refers to how much of these reactions are happening. High metabolic rate means a lot. Warm-blooded animals tend to be tachymetabolic, which means a high metabolism. Cold-blooded animals tend to be bradymetabolic, which means they have a low metabolic rate. But... There's tons of variation in this. (laughs) Warm-blooded animals, for example, tend to be pretty warm, pretty stable, but what counts as warm will depend on what organism you're talking about. Absolutely. We humans, again, 37 Celsius, 98.6, but mammals in general range from typical temperatures anywhere between 30 and 40 degrees Celsius. 
about 85 to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. One of the highest, I think the highest one that I saw cited specifically was pronghorns. Oh. I don't know why. Huh. I didn't look any deeper into that. Interesting. Just there. And the lowest ones tend to be things like monotremes. Yep, yep. Birds get even hotter than this. Uh, birds range from a low end of temperatures around 34 Celsius, so 93 Fahrenheit. And the highest temperature that I saw uh, cited for birds was 44.6 degrees Celsius or 112 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Can you guess what birds that was? Uh, I'm not actually sure. I'll say it and you're going to go, oh, of course it is. Hummingbirds. Oh, yep, yep, yep. Hummingbirds. Hummingbird. Apparently yep. some hummingbirds get up to like... No. Almost 45 degrees Celsius, that, which... Yep. That make, how did they not <laughs> just explode? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cold-blooded animals also vary, and the thing that's important to note about cold-blooded animals is the cold-blooded part tends to refer to their resting body temperature. Yeah. When yeah. they're not doing it, when we're not doing anything as endothermic, homeothermic, warm-blooded animals, we're warm anyway. Yes. Like, when you're asleep, you're, you're probably a little cooler than when you're running around. Absolutely. But you're still a very warm-bodied organism. When a snake is at rest, it's cold. Yes. But once it starts getting active, when, when cold-blooded animals are hunting or fighting or, or showing off for mates or whatever they're doing, that body temperature and, met and metabolism tends to get up closer to what you would see in things like mammals and birds. So cold-blooded animals aren't cold all the time, mm -hmm. but they return to being, because that's kind of their resting state. They'll cool down unless they do something about it. Yes. There are also tons of exceptions <laughs> to this warm-blooded, cold-blooded shift. There are tons of cold-blooded animals, sort of traditionally considered cold-blooded, that can produce their own body heat at times, including, for example, certain sharks. Yep. Tuna mm -hmm. are really good at this. There are also warm-blooded animals that can be, uh, for example, poikilothermic, experiencing drastic shifts in temperature. One of the most notorious examples of this, and an, a group of animals that is only ever mentioned on this podcast <laughs> in terms of being the exception to something, yep. are naked mole rats, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> who can experience shifts in temperature. Uh, they have been described as, at least at times, being ectothermic. Yeah. That that they aren't producing as much body heat. They go through these fluctuations. So if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you will not be at all surprised to hear that these simple, easy, familiar terms don't really cover everything. No. So with the terminology and the general idea out of the way, let's talk about some of the actual mechanisms that organisms use to regulate their temperature. And while we go through this, we'll talk about a bunch of these exceptions yeah. and alterations, which will be cool. So thermoregulation, uh, the other thing that's important to consider is as we talk about all this stuff, uh, we're not going to be talking about temperature so much as we will be specifically talking about heat. Yeah. Thermoregulation usually involves gaining or losing heat because heat is a thing and cold is the absence of heat. Yep, cold yep. is like shadow, it's like darkness. Darkness, yes. is, you can't measure darkness. <laughs> you can just measure how much light there isn't there. Heat is really what we're generally talking about when we come talk about temperature. Yeah, so whenever you say, like, don't let the cold in, it's you're letting the, the heat you're out. You're letting usually. the heat out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about a bunch of the ways that we living things uh, regulate our temperature. 
One very obvious way to do this is to utilize external sources of temperature. Go someplace warm. It is important to, uh, to note here, this is something that is done by basically all animals. Mm-hmm. Warm-blooded animals also will do this. Yep. This is why, like, your cat will go sit in the sunbeam yeah. that's coming in, or when it's cold out, you go in the shade. And why we make or when it's hot out. fires and stuff to, like... Yes. Yeah. This is not just an ectotherm thing to do. We, we can also use our external environment to help manage our temperature. Mm-hmm. For warming up, this is classic stuff like... Basking in the sun, sitting on some, you know, going into warm water or a lizard will sit on a hot rock. Uh, There is also a specific term, kleptothermy. Oh, nice. Which is for when you are getting your body heat from another body. Ah. (laughs) Uh, This is useful. I mean, the the sort of nice... (laughs) <laughs> uh, snuggly version is us mammals yeah. like to cuddle together. I was going to say, uh, I bet a lot of couples right now are, are pointing at each other. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> or like you have your pets or whatever. Uh, kleptothermy is also a strategy used by a lot of parasites. Yep. So like, yeah, if you're a little mite, you're you're spending all your day on a nice warm body. Yeah, your environment is that warm body yes. you're feeding off of. <laughs> uh, this also works for cooling down. Moving into the shade, going into the water to cool down if you are getting too hot. Yeah, this is why if you like spend a lot of time watching reptiles at a zoo, you watch them move around their environment, and very often it is because of this. Yes. They have gotten warm, but now if they stay there, they will be getting too warm, so they'll move back into the water, like if you're watching gators. And if you have like a pet lizard or a pet snake or something, what is recommended for their little habitat is to have a heat lamp or a heat source. But to also have a shady corner. Yeah, put only put that on one end so that yes. way they can move in and out of it. Absolutely. Uh, one thing that's interesting to note is that some animals that mainly get their heat from outside, so ectothermic, can use these strategies to effectively be stable in their temperature. Yep. So I saw this noted in uh, desert-dwelling lizards that during the day, even though they themselves are not maintaining a constant internal body heat they can be effectively homeothermic just by being in the sun all day yeah at night they'll they'll cool back down but they can be effectively stable just using external sources of heat similar things have been pointed out for why crocs can be nocturnal because they are aquatic and water retains heat longer than the land does yeah so they can keep being active late into the night because there's enough heat left over yes The other major category, of course, is internal sources of heat. So let's talk about endothermy in all its many forms. (laughs) Now, the famous endotherms, the two groups of animals that are like, these are the quintessential endothermic internal body heat organisms, are mammals and birds. Yep. Mammals and birds tend to use two main mechanisms to remain warm, to keep up their body heat. One is metabolism. Yes. Those chemical reactions inside of our bodies produce heat because they are inefficient because yeah. uh, th- that's entropy, baby. <laughs> that's how it works. So some of the, some of its heat, some yes. of its being, quote, wasted energy, which comes off as heat uh, in certain different groups of animals. Different tissues are the ones producing these reactions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in placental mammals, uh, often brown adipose tissue, which is a type of fat tissue, is usually cited as a major factor in where our heat is being generated. 
and birds. It's often cited as being mostly coming from the muscle, skeletal muscles specifically. There's other places that it can come from. It differs from group to group. Yeah, because a lot of those reactions are happening throughout your body, so they can be right. varying degrees, but we do actually have specialized tissue for that. Yes, and that is, it, we're, it's just running. Yes. It's like an engine idling, mm-hmm. creating this heat. The other main mechanism that both mammals and birds use that is not metabolic is called, and here's the scientific term, shivering. (laughs) Yep. That's a thing we do. All mammals do that pretty much. Uh, As far as I know, all birds also do this. Shivering, this is what happens when you get cold, is a, it's, it's not just like a side effect of being cold. It's a thing that your body does. Yes. And it has been, I, saw, I saw it described as the asynchronous excitation of muscle fibers, <laughs> which essentially means activating muscles. So making the muscles contract, but instead of doing it in a sort of coordinated way that allows you to like move your arms or your legs or whatever, it's a bunch of muscles all being activated at once, often opposing each other yep. so that all that actually happens is you just kind of shake. Yes. The, the, the muscles are counteracting each other, so you just kind of shake. It's purposely randomized mu- muscle movement. Yes, it, it is intentionally... Uh, this is a term that I'll bring up again in a bit. It is uh, what is called a futile <laughs> action. Yes, it's oh, a that's fu- great. a futile cycle. Yes. Uh, those contractions of the muscle generate heat. They mm-hmm. produce this energy that is released as heat. Yeah, so when you shiver, like you said, it's not just... That's not something that just happens because you're cold... And it's not an indicator of cold. It is a response to cold. Yes, your body says, we need to be warmer. Yes. Let's do this thing. So birds and mammals tend to use uh, what are what is called shivering thermo. I think thermogenesis uh, mm-hmm, or thermoregulation mm-hmm. and non-shivering, which <laughs> refers to the metabolic stuff. <laughs> Outside of mammals and birds, we do see a phenomenon. Uh, typically what we'll see is regional endothermy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is certain parts of the body instead of the whole body like in us certain parts of the body are producing heat this is seen very famously in a bunch of different groups of fish yeah tuna marlin swordfish mackerel sharks Mm -hmm. so the family lamniidae which includes i want to say like makos great whites yep Great whites are the ones that you'll hear this come up with just over and over again because it's a very famous thing with them. Many of these groups exhibit what I have seen referred to as heat organs. Yeah. These are, every time I saw it brought up, it was specifically eye muscles. So muscles that uh, sort of ancestrally their job is to move the eyes around. Certain eye muscles have lost that ancestral ability to contract and be muscles and instead perform futile cycling cool. so they are performing actions within that muscle tissue that produces heat and that's kind of their only job now wow is to produce heat usually around the brain the eyes important organs yeah yep. uh, another thing that you'll see in a lot of these fish uh, is tissue that's called red muscle yes which also serves a very similar purpose it is performing contractions kind of the way that shivering works in this specific muscular tissue that is then producing heat mm-hmm. which is a cool concept because like we said every time you move your muscles they heat up because it's yeah that's, that's why what... if you go for a run mm-hmm. you get nice and warm and that just happens you know, it's the same thing as like using a piece of machinery if you're moving a piece of machinery it's gonna heat up because right. friction is happening well, yeah, when you turn on your car engine yeah. the the heating up part isn't 
necessary to make the car go. No. I, now, I, I'm, I'm sure there's yeah. mechanics out there. It, it's, definitely it can be important. Helps. It's yes, useful exactly. for the car. You don't want it to stay cold. Yes. But just to make a car move, you don't necessarily need it to be hot, yeah. hot, hot. We don't design it so to produce <laughs> that heat. That heat's going to happen That's no gonna matter happen what. That's going to anyway. When you spin pieces of metal that <laughs> fast, you're going to get heat. So you're producing that heat anyway. It's cool that there are muscles particularly that could still be acting as muscle, but we're going to make you hot muscle. Like yes. this muscle is meant to be getting a bit hotter to serve this role. Uh, and this is something found in several lineages of fish that have this regional endothermy. All of which you mentioned very fast moving and fish. Oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. <laughs> Another group that famously exhibits uh, regional endothermy is insects. This is something seen in wasps, bees, butterflies, moths, and beetles. They will use their wing muscles to generate body heat. They do. Uh, In some cases, they'll actually flap. Like, they'll Mm -hmm. just be sitting around and just flap their wings a Mm -hmm. bunch. And that muscular activity, it's like doing jumping jacks. Yes. You're not going anywhere, but you are warming yourself up. Um, they will also, in some cases, do something kind of similar to shivering, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. activating the wing muscles, but not actually flapping them, just kind of uh, vibrating, vibrating yeah. them to warm up. A bunch of insects have been noted to do this before flying oh. to warm up the flight muscles. Yeah, it's like stretching before it's a like run. Stretch- <laughs> it's like warming up the car. Yes, exactly. Like they actually because if the if they get too cold. They can't fly effectively. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you'll see like bees or butterflies or something flap and buzz a bunch before they can actually take off because they have to get warmed up. That's cool. Uh, I also read that apparently bumblebees have been known to do this while brooding Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to generate heat that they can then pass on uh, to their eggs or larvae or whatever. Within the hive so that they can help the temperature with that for everyone else in there. So there's a bunch of different ways of getting external heat. There's a bunch of different ways of getting internal heat. It is not just a mammals and birds thing. There is also a fascinating category of thermoregulation called heterothermy. Heterothermy refers to the ability to switch between states. Yes, yes. To switch between endothermy, ectothermy, or homo- homeothermy and poikilothermy. This is something that we see actually in a bunch of birds and mammals. A lot of them, especially small ones, can go into a colder, lower metabolic state. We call this torpor Yep. in many cases. Bats, rodents, echidnas, hummingbirds are all known to do this, where at night they'll kind of power down a bit and get colder and lower their metabolism. Sometimes this will happen when food is not uh, as scarce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's been reported in like laboratory mice, where if they are on a low calorie diet, they'll start going into torpor at night. Interesting. So yeah. they can sh- change between these high temperature, high metabolic states to a lower state. Also, hibernation mm-hmm. act as something very similar, uh, which we see in, a- in mammals like bears and things like that. Yep, yep. There are also quote cold blooded animals that can activate more of a warm-blooded behavior in certain conditions. One of the most famous examples of this are in Burmese pythons and also diamond pythons. Mm-hmm. Brooding females will coil around their eggs and shiver. Yep. Effectively shiver, very similar to what we do and what we were describing with the insects doing. And they'll shiver. And I saw it reported that by doing this, they can bring their body temperature up 
to 30, 32 degrees Celsius, yeah. which is up to about 90 degrees Fahrenheit, which is pretty warm for a snake. Yeah, no, that's that's active it's temperatures. Almost our <laughs> body temperature. That's pretty awesome. And But they do this while brooding. Mm-hmm. This is a, a situational sort of endothermy, which is really cool. Another interesting version of thermoregulation that really comes up mainly with one particular species on our planet, uh, at least one particular living species, you will see the term gigantothermy. Yep. Gigantothermy, uh, also called inertial homeothermy. (laughs) Yeah. The idea that if your bigger bodies lose heat more slowly. Yep. The larger your volume in relation to your surface area. This is why tiny animals like hummingbirds and mice get cold really quickly. Yep. But leatherback sea turtles are noted for being able to maintain a relatively higher body temperature, not nearly as much as us, but higher and effectively stable. Yeah. And they have adaptations for conserving heat within their bodies. But a thing that really seems to be helping them out is that they're just huge. Mm -hmm. So they don't lose heat very quickly. So they can effectively become homeothermic without needing all that metabolic or muscular activity that other animals are doing to achieve that. Yeah, which is such a weird solution. Just to just be big seems too simple for how complex most of the homeothermic (laughs) uh, uh, mechanisms typically are. That seems like just too easy of an answer, but it works. Yes. Uh, hence the name inertial homeothermy. Yeah. So yeah, you it's just hard to change from being that temperature. It's really hard to cool that much turtle down. Yes. <laughs> we also see a whole bunch of different adaptations that animals use for managing their body temperature. Uh, insulation is very common. Blubber, fur, feathers, which can be helpful for pre- keeping the heat inside like a warm blanket. Different animals' body shapes can vary. So in colder environments, what we'll often see is animals evolving larger or rounder bodies. Extremities like limbs and ears get tend to be shorter so that you they, they can remain warmer for longer. It's harder for them to get cold. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of animals that have adaptations to increase their surface area to create temperature regulating tools Mm -hmm. we mentioned this last episode uh ears yep yes elephants have uh the same thing that sea turtles do that the big turtles do is that they cool down very very slowly which is a problem sometimes (laughs) if you're an elephant in the hot african sun those ears are good for both absorbing heat or radiating heat yep yep it's very they're literally radiators in that they are large and thin giving you maximum surface area. Yes, we see this with uh, some animals use their tails, their wings, Uh, some insects. I I read somewhere that butterflies will sometimes be seen basking in the sun, like turn Mm -hmm. their wings toward to catch the sun. Yeah. Uh, There is also the strategy of cooling by evaporation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sweat is what does this for us. As sweat cooled, evaporates off of our skin, it cools down. That's part of that reaction. Uh, uh, animals that pant are doing a very similar thing. They're evaporating uh, moisture. A lot of animals also use their own body fluids to transfer heat. Mm-hmm. So our arms and legs receive a lot of their heat from the heat inside the, the core of us because blood carries it out there. A very common 
example of this is what's called countercurrent exchange, mm-hmm. where blood vessels with fresh, warm blood go right past blood vessels that have staler, cooler blood. Yep, yep. So that we're not, it, it's evening out nicely. We see this in a lot of different animals. Insects will do this with their own, with their hemolymph, their sort of version of this. Their bug blood. Their bug blood. So there's all sorts of different adaptations for managing the amount of heat that is being received by different parts of the body, anatomical things, circulatory system things, and so on. Uh, This is a point, there's nowhere else in this episode that I'm going to get the chance to mention this, so I'm just going to throw it out here. Uh, A a lot of life has antifreeze proteins. Yep. Special proteins that prevent the buildup of ice crystals. We see this in we see this in microbes. We see it in plants. We see it in a bunch of animals. Mm-hmm. A lot of fish have this that it allows them to exist in colder areas. And there are very famously animals like certain frogs and certain insects that literally freeze over in the winter. Yep, and then thaw themselves back out. That's the end of that conversation for this episode. <laughs> if you'd like to hear more about that, uh, submit your request now. There's a link in the episode description. Yeah. I think one of my favorite things about the, the like this kind of list of adaptations for thermoregulation is that so many of them are the same thing we have to do with our devices and systems. Yeah. Like, if you look inside your computer, there are things for moving around the heat and radiating heat. If you have a water cooling system, mm-hmm. that countercurrent heating and cooling is a thing. Moving heat from one area to a place that would be too cold is a thing. Like... All of these things are mechanical and and uh, uh, system solutions that we use in our day to day life, and you can find it in animals. Yes, for the same reasons, because you have to manage heat to work effectively. Yeah, and there's tons, just the sheer variety of ways that animals have evolved to do this to either generate heat or get heat or move the heat around or lose the heat is a testament to how important this is for life. To manage. Yep. Before we move away from that, there is another thing. Since we're talking about methods of not only managing heat, but generating heat, endothermy is seen, of course, in mammals and birds. I mentioned a bunch of examples of reptiles, insects, fish doing sort of their own versions of endothermy. Endothermy is also known in plants. (laughs) There are plants that can generate heat with their own internal metabolic reactions. I didn't know this, but I'm also not horribly surprised. No, of surprised. course, it's out of plants. <laughs> this has been noted, for example, in skunk cabbage, some lilies, uh, the flowers of some plants, the cones of cycads. So sometimes it's in specific parts of the plant. Yeah, yeah they use, a, a, I, I, from what I read, it looks like it's a particular type of respiratory reaction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that is modified to generate excess heat the same way that a lot of animals have chemical reactions that generate heat. In some yeah. cases, this seems to function to maybe keep the plant warm. Yes. Uh, which is important for plants, too. Uh, I've seen it cited that this is also thought in some cases to potentially activate chemical signals that attract pollinators. Yep, yep, yep. That if you keep warm, it sort of makes these, it makes things smelly. Exactly. Yeah, it's going to put you in the effective temperature range for yes. the chemicals you're using. Also, ahem, lodgepole pine dwarf mistletoe has been observed to seemingly use the heat of the internal reactions 
to trigger the explosive dispersal of seeds. <laughs> what? That warming up is important for these plants to then launch their seeds many meters away. That's so weird. I have no further information about that. <laughs> That's just a thing I came across. Uh, put in your requests now for an episode about lodgepole pine dwarf mistletoe. Now, <laughs> with all this talk about all these adaptations, uh, we have, I, I think, uh, gone into quite a bit of detail as to why this is important. But uh, there are clearly many different ways that organisms can do this. There are different general strategies that warm-blooded, cold-blooded dichotomy is simplified, but it still does reflect a very general idea that some animals go with high metabolism, high body temperature, stable body temperature, and others go with the opposite. Yep. So as we start to move into eventually this discussion of the ancient history and the evolution of these trends... I think now is a good time for us to have a little discussion about what, what are the trade-offs and what are the benefits of these sort of opposite strategies of, quote, warm-bloodedness and, quote, cold-bloodedness, keeping in mind that there's all this intermediate stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Being warm-blooded has a bunch of obvious benefits. Mm -hmm. We are very familiar with them because we are warm-blooded animals. Being warm-blooded means you don't have to rely on external sources of heat. You can be warm whenever. Yep. Inside a cave, I can still stay warm. Yep. You can. Go, it can be nighttime. You can go play in the snow. Mm-hmm. Like, you can go play in the snow for hours and then come back in, and you're still going to be pretty much the same temperature you were when you went out. Yep, yep. That is an incredible ability that we have. It means that warm-blooded, being consistently warm, being homeothermic and endothermic allows warm-blooded animals to ac access broader environments. You can be active at night, you can live high on a mountain, you can live up in the Arctic, and so on. It also means a shorter recovery time from being active. Mm -hmm. You're not mm -hmm. using up all of your energy in a quick burst of activity because you're constantly generating the, uh, energy for your body. Yes. That's like you, the example of like warming up something before using it. If you're always warm, it's kind of ready for use and recovery. Yeah. You're not wearing it out or overheating it in yes. the one go. Uh, speaking of being always warm, this is a note that I saw uh, come up when I was reading papers that have written about this. Being warm all the time, I've seen noted as being beneficial for gestation. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. if you are you know, producing an egg, growing an embryo inside the body. Being warm all the time is helpful for that. It has also been noted to be helpful for our immune system. We homeothermic high temperature animals are in a, what I've seen described as a state of permanent fever. Yeah, exactly. The reason that you get a fever when you're sick is that is one of your body's defenses. It, you're trying to basically cook the pathogens away. Yeah, if, if you've ever seen that, those, that documentary footage of the bees that overheat the wasp when it yes. invades... That's what our body can do to talk to the invaders. Mm -hmm. If we get too hot, we might kill off a whole bunch of yes. that infection. Or they just, they might simply stop functioning properly and then they can get caught by our, you know, armies of white blood cells. Being warm all the time means that you are inaccessible to some of those microbes. Yeah, we, we are just inhospitable to anything that ranges below our temperature. Yes. Now, with all that being said, there are some notable trade-offs for being this way. Yep. The main one, the, the big, obvious, 
cost to this is that we require so much energy and fuel yep. to maintain, to be 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit at all times. That takes a lot of effort and work. Our bodies are constantly working to do that. We need to eat all the time. Yeah, exactly. Like, we need constant refueling. We are always in danger of running out of fuel. Yes. Like, comparing us with, quote, cold-blooded animals, right, a snake or a croc, especially big ones, can go months without eating. If we go, like, a few days without eating, we start to have trouble. Yeah. Like, actual health concerns can come up. <laughs> yes. Before we've gone even a week without food. Absolutely. And then a reptile could go literally half the year for some yeah. of them. Like, between big meals. You can't, if you're if you're reliant on external temperatures, you can't be active in the winter in many cases. But if you maintain a very low metabolism and you don't need to have high body temperature, then you don't need to do anything in the winter. Yeah, exactly. We need to be, we can't just go to sleep through the winter outside of hibernation and special adaptations for it. If you go to sleep for the whole winter, you don't wake up. Yeah, well, that's why you hear the surviving the winter has been a thing throughout human history yes. for so long because... <laughs> If you run out of food stock in the middle of winter, that we don't have a homeotherm, we don't have a metabolism way around that like a reptile could. Mm -hmm. All right, well then just go to sleep and wake back up. Yes. No, that's it then. One of my favorite examples of this, and I know I've said this on the podcast before, in the fantastic ecosystems of Africa, when the dry season comes along and food becomes scarce in certain places mammals go on vast migrations to follow, right? The, the, the herds of herbivores have to walk for hundreds and thousands of miles, even with their little babies that can barely keep up, to follow where the grass is, to follow where the water is. The carnivores have to then make those same paths to chase after, right? Lions and leopards and stuff have to chase after them. And then they come back after they do these vast migrations. The crocs in those areas eat a zebra <laughs> and then hang out for several months. Yep. They go, all right, I'll wait till you get back. Did and they, they just stay. Just sit there and wait. <laughs> it's like, all right, I got my I got my meal. I'm good for five months. Yep. That is an incredible demonstration of the difference between these overall life strategies. Mammals and birds migrate on the regular. Reptiles, not that's no, not a typical thing. Not so much. Reptiles go to sleep. Yep. <laughs> they say, wake me up they just, uh, when it's done. Cool. I'll be here <laughs> when you're here again. Another potential downside to the warm-blooded life strategy is that while we are able to access, you know, we're able to be active at night, we're able to be active in the winter, our bodies can't handle major fluctuations. Yep. Like, we're good at maintaining that stable temperature, but if that starts to fail... Like, we humans, right, we've got that nice 37 Celsius baseline. If we go up or down, like, two or three degrees, that's trouble. That's a hospital visit. That's Yeah, <laughs> you might have to go to the hospital. If you go up, like, five or six degrees, you might not ever go back to stable. Yeah, exactly. That might be the end. It's why things like our, if your core body temperature just suddenly dips because you're out in the cold or something happens... It's a panic moment because that is not supposed to happen. Yes, I think one of the things that I read mentioned that hypothermia. So hypothermia means you not enough heat. Mm -hmm. Hyperthermia means too much heat. Uh, hypothermia sets in for us at like 
95 degrees Fahrenheit yep. and below or something, which is not very far off. No. Like we are always on the cusp exactly. of being too hot or too cold. A handful of degrees in the wrong direction <laughs> and we are in trouble. Whereas a, a cold-blooded animal, an animal that has that strategy, can handle that. Yep. They can go up and down. They might not be able to be super active while they're cold, but that fluctuation isn't going to cause a shutdown of all their systems. Yes. And it, it, you can see situations like that of animals waking up of like a cold snap and they are stunned because it got too cold for them to be active. But then they mm-hmm. warm back up and they wake back up and they go. While if we were out in that, we might not make it through. Right. Now, on the other hand, one of the downsides along those lines is that if you are a cold-blooded strategist, your body temperature isn't always in your control. Nope. Sometimes you don't have a choice. Yeah. Like, if it's getting cold and there's nothing for you to do about it, you're you're just going to get cold. Yes. Whereas us warm-blooded animals, we get to, quote, decide <laughs> what temperature we are because it's the same all the time for the most part. Yeah, so you, you can see situations of cold-blooded animals getting trapped because it gets cold they get inactive, and you can't warm back up to scramble that last few feet to mm-hmm. the ideal place. If you got too cold too soon, you're now cold wherever you were. Yes. But one of the things that I think is really important uh, to lay these things out is because, as is so often the case, with where you have something like cold-bloodedness, right? ectothermy, poikilothermy, low metabolism is kind of the norm. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the default state for most animals. Warm-bloodedness, endothermy, high metabolism, and so on, is something that seems to be more specialized. Mm-hmm. There are special adaptations for that. It is also something that we exhibit. And because of these factors, it is very common for to be treated kind of like, yes, there's the default version that is the basic, simple, no-big-deal version. And then there's the thing that evolved later, yep. the specialized version, which is better in every way. And why wouldn't you do that? That one is dial-up and one is Wi-Fi. And that right. <laughs> and it's like, there you wh- go. Why isn't every animal in the world being warm-blooded to accomplish this? Uh, cult, there is a place for being ectothermic. That, yes. that, that can be a beneficial strategy in many cases. It isn't just that there's the animals that have managed warm-bloodedness and the ones that just missed out. <laughs> the poor suckers. The, the poor saps <laughs> that haven't managed it. No, the, there is there is a benefit evolutionarily, mm-hmm. survival-wise, to having that life strategy in some cases. Absolutely. Uh, my other favorite example of that difference is in the past when I've like gone on vacation and in situations where I've had two pets mm-hmm. that have to be taken care of. Yep. And one of them, it's like, all right, I need a friend to come over every day and make sure that this cat gets food. Yeah, you need a pet sitter. There's a guy, yeah, someone has to, every day you need to get food. Every day this needs to happen. And I get, I lay out all the stuff and I say, here's all the things. And then my friends go, cool, should I do anything about the snake? And I go, nope, I'm going to give him a, give him a snack and I'm going to shut his light off. And when I get back, I'll turn his light back on and it'll be food time again. Yep. It is really notable that when it comes to handling hard times, your cold-blooded animals have a lot more options to get around that. The other one that I always think of is deserts. Yeah. Because us warm-blooded animals struggle with deserts because now we are producing heat in a hot place. Yes. Now, well, it's like if your computer runs hot in the summertime. Exactly. Now now it's a problem. You you could break this because Mm -hmm. it is running too hot. So we have to develop a whole bunch of ways to cool down and a whole bunch of techniques. 
Lizards are supreme in the desert. Yeah, having a great time. They are so good in the <laughs> desert. They are super diverse there. And yeah, because there's plenty of heat. And all they have to do to cool down is find shade. Yeah. And they're fine. They're not having to worry about all this excess heat and how to get rid of it. They just have to get out of the heat. Yes. And getting out of the heat, in many cases, is as easy as just going into the sand. Yeah, just burying yourself. A lot of lizards and snakes, or like toads, mm-hmm. uh, these cold-blooded animals that live in deserts, will just, if, as you can dig down, not even very far. No. You only have to get down a bit, and now it's nice and cool. So, like, there are situations where that really is more effective, arguably, mm-hmm. than being homeothermic like us. It's just, we are used to the situations where... That we've made. Right. <laughs> and so... Yeah, if you ask somebody in Vegas... Yeah. They might have a different opinion about <laughs> their their body's ability to produce high temperatures yep. all the time. Yep. Yep. <laughs> now, with this discussion of sort of the benefits, the trade-offs, we are leading into the questions of the ancient history, the evolution of these lifestyles, of these adaptations... We're going to take a short break, as is tradition, and then after that, we're going to start talking about how we identify thermoregulatory strategies in ancient organisms. Yeah, how warm were these dead things? (laughs) Warmer than they are now. (laughs) One one When we talk about thermoregulation strategies of the past, really what we tend to be talking about is endothermy. Yeah. Who was producing internal body heat, maintaining temperatures? Quote, cold-bloodedness is kind of the default. Yeah. Like we said, for animal life in general, low metabolism, relatively low body temperatures. Because well, most things on the planet are the temperature of the environment around them. Yes. It's, rocks. <laughs> yeah. Trees. <laughs> the water, the air. That's yeah. kind of the norm. It's weird when things are a temperature other yes. than... That's a specialized thing. But like if we find a fish and a frog and an ancient amphibian or something, it's safe to assume, unless there's evidence otherwise, that this is what you were doing. Yes. So when we're looking in the fossil record, what we're typically looking for when it comes to these things is, are there signs that you weren't just doing it, that yeah. you did have some sort of specialized thermoregulatory, high metabolism, high body temperature, stuff like that. And because of that, it means that if you are having a discussion about body temperatures in the fossil record, or if you are diving into the literature and reading a bunch of papers that have been done about it, like I did in preparation for this episode, you are mostly talking about four particular groups of ancient animals. Yeah, The big four tend to be, uh, number one, marine reptiles, Mm -hmm. which is multiple groups. That's not just one lineage. Mosasaurs, ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, this comes up quite a lot. These are large animals a lot of the time with active lifestyles. They are shaped like tuna Mm -hmm. and lamniform sharks. So they are prime candidates for having a lifestyle that may have benefited from higher body temperatures. Similarly, pterosaurs... Yep. Pterosaurs fly. Every th- uh, bats fly, birds fly. Flight is an extremely demanding thing to be able to do. It is something that you would imagine you might need high metabolism, warm bodies to do. And then there are the lineages 
that eventually give rise to our two big-deal warm-blooded animal groups. Mammals, which means that there's a lot of interest in exploring ancient early synapsids, the group of animals that ultimately eventually produces true mammals, and birds, which means dinosaurs. Yes. Uh, and that's the one that had their, for sure the most research and energy has gone into, is what were the temperature and metabolic strategies of dinosaurs? In order to investigate these questions, paleontologists go looking for signs of thermoregulatory strategy. Once again, most of what I'm going to be talking about here is endothermy. Specifically, did you have a high body temperature? Were you maintaining a warm-blooded type strategy? Obviously, we can't take the temperature of a fossil. Yep. We only have one fossilized dino cloaca. So right. <laughs> and even that, that won't help. The, no, that thing, it's cold. Once, <laughs> once you die, all those lovely behaviors and things that you were doing to maintain your body temperature uh, go away. You yep. become an ectotherm in the truest sense. <laughs> you are now not only the temperature of the environment, you are part of the environment. Yep. But there are potential evidences of endothermy in the fossil record. Let's go through some categories. Keep in mind, and you'll notice with a lot of these, there are very few things that are like for sure definitely a sign of warm-bloodedness, but there are a lot of features that are commonly associated with endothermy or more active lifestyles, things we see in birds and mammals that are often cited to, in conjunction with each other, potentially hint at this kind of lifestyle in ancient animals. Yeah, these features would make sense in a warm-blooded animal. Yes. One major category is evidence of special adaptations in the circulatory or respiratory system. Mm -hmm. uh, there's actually been a ton of research into this. So, for example, uh, in bones, uh, sometimes just in the overall structure of the bone, but also histology, cutting through the bone and looking at the structure of the bone tissue, researchers will sometimes look for signs of lots of vascularization. Lots of blood vessels or particularly large areas for blood vessels which might in indicate high blood flow, and more blood flow tends to be a trait that we see a lot in active, high-metabolism animals. Things like this have been noticed, noted, for example, in the limb bones of some early synapsids, mm -hmm. some dinosaurs. Another feature that is sometimes pointed at in this regard is uh, the nasal cavities, particularly large nasal cavities, large noses, are sometimes an adaptation for Basically, more airflow. Yes. You can breathe more efficiently if you have space to take in more air, and a more active respiratory system is a hallmark of birds and mammals. Yep. The animals we have today that are endothermic high metabolism. There's also, in uh, pterosaurs and certain dinosaurs have been noted to have spaces in the bones that seem to be prime areas for air sacs, like we see in birds. That is an extension of the bird respiratory system, which is a very efficient respiratory system. And another uh, thing along these lines is the presence of what are called respiratory turbinates. If you ever get the chance to look inside the nasal cavity of a mammal skull, there's this like labyrinth of extremely thin bone. Sometimes it's cartilage. Uh, sometimes it's actual bone. It's like this rolled up newspaper yep, yep. of tissue in there. Of just wafer, wafer thin. Uh, this we see in mammals and birds, and it provides extra surface area for either 
smelling or breathing, mm-hmm. depending on what part it is. This has been suggested to potentially be crucial for warm-blooded animals Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because if you have a high rate of respiration you're in danger of losing of drying out or cooling down because of all that airflow so having all that surface area allows these animals to trap heat and moisture within those tissues we see them extensively in birds and mammals we do not see them basically at all in ectotherms so this is another thing that has been pointed at that this could be an indicator of a more warm-blooded type strategy. We There's evidence, uh, usually not the whole actual turbinates because they're extremely delicate, but like the ridges where they would have attached alongside the cavity have been seen in some early synapsids along the line towards mammals. This usually uh, is used as evidence in conjunction with larger nasal cavities. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Bigger noses, more room for this stuff. All of these forms of evidence are as will be a trend here, things we see in birds and mammals. Yes. Birds and mammals are specialized endotherms. We see these kinds of uh, adaptations to their respiratory and circulatory systems. Looking for similar things in ancient animals can help us to potentially identify things with similar adaptations. Which is very similar to how we look for things like, were you a predator? You know, were you a climber? Right. There are physical... You you are... you. (laughs) There are things that mean you will be shaped more like an endotherm or ectotherm because just changing the way your body runs is not t- always enough. You yes. need other attachments and upgrades to the body. And speaking of being shaped like an endotherm, <laughs> there are also other anatomical features that have been correlated with this. One is having an upright body posture. Yep. Birds and mammals are both independently evolved animals that have their legs directly under the body an upright stance what's called the parasagittal stance this body posture potentially requires stronger hearts higher blood flow things that are associated with higher metabolism uh warm-blooded strategies notably we also see this across dinosaurs we see it in pterosaurs we see it in some early synapsids and some other early archosaurs Mm -hmm. that have this more upright stance Along a very similar line, being big and tall has been proposed in some cases to maybe be part of the suite of features that goes along with endothermy. Because if you're really tall, you need a powerful circulatory. You need your body to be active just to pump blood all the way up there or just to move air and other stuff all around that body. Yep, And, and maintain heat across it and everything. Yes. Yeah. The, the upright stance is, uh, to me, very much makes me think of, like, the differences between sports car and normal car. Of Like, mm-hmm. that is often pointed out as a more efficient, you know, stance for moving that you can typically move faster that way and long distance more efficiently than the sprawling legs of a lizard or croc. Mm-hmm. But you also are going to be using up a lot of energy still. Like, yeah. you're still in a higher energy register, even though you're being more efficient with that energy. Yeah. It requires more energy. Yes. Yeah, just standing up straight requires muscle action. And that's something I think people, it gets missed a lot of time when we talk about a way of life being more efficient. That doesn't necessarily mean lower energy. Right. You're just using less energy while you're doing the thing than you would be if you had a different body shape. You're still probably using, in total, more energy to move that way. Mm-hmm. You're just doing it better than the other one would have. 
There is also, on the note of anatomy, uh, you mentioned this in the last episode. This also came up in the news uh, a while back. There was a study in 2022 that correlated the shape of the inner ear bones mm-hmm. to body temperature because the narrower or wider the canals are tends to correlate with body temperature because the fluid within those tubes of the inner ear changes based on the temperature which is great that's which that's, is very cool that's such a a, a weird thing that you wouldn't consider but yeah. like, different parts of your body react differently to the temperature so that study specifically looked at the inner ear bones of early synapsids mm-hmm. uh, outside of mammals to identify which ones had warm looking inner ear bones versus colder looking inner <laughs> ear bones Uh, And then another anatomical feature that comes up a lot in these discussions in the fossil record is insulation. Mm -hmm. Specifically, again, since we're talking about mammal and bird line, fur and feathers are often cited as potential uh, evidence in the direction of having warmer bodies. Yeah, because if you put a fur coat on a reptile, it's not going to help. Unless that reptile is already warm. Yes. It might help them to to, to cool down more slowly, but like a snake at night is not going to benefit from a blanket. Exactly. There's no there's no heat under there. For the blanket to trap, so they will just be the same temperature as the blanket. <laughs> Some studies also look into behavioral signs. Uh, this usually is looking at signs of active lifestyles. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the more active an animal seems to be, the more high energy lifestyle they seem to have, the more likely that is to... Uh, potentially require something like a higher metabolism, higher body temperature. The marine reptiles, like I mentioned, are often tuna-shaped or great white shark-shaped, and those are animals with active lifestyles, which have endothermic adaptations. Pterosaurs fly. Mm -hmm. That's a big clue. (laughs) A lot of dinosaurs and early archosaurs are bipedal yes uh and by being walking around on two legs is often associated with adaptations for running moving around a lot a lot of dinosaurs have big heavy duty uh musculature yeah. in their legs and tails for moving around very quickly a lot of dinosaurs have also been noted along these lines to have specific feeding adaptations Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. specialized teeth either for you know shearing meat but also like we talked about with hadrosaurs for grinding up plants which some have proposed might be an indicator of very efficient digestive systems Mm -hmm. which would be a handy adaptation to have if you have to eat a lot yeah that you need to be better at eating because you're going to do it often right that you can't get away with being inefficient yes. at eating because you need all that food yeah, to that power that body. Wasted time and energy might be too too much for you to handle. Yes. Uh, continuing on the note of dinosaurs and behavioral stuff, we also have some fossils of dinosaurs brooding their eggs. Yeah. Which is a thing we see in birds and mammals that use their body heat to warm up their nests. Obviously, that's not only a thing mm-hmm. that birds and mammals do, like we saw with pythons. Another thing that has been noted specifically, again, for dinosaurs is dinosaurs are found from the tropics to the poles. That's always been one of like the big aspects of why are we finding you in they, places that we don't know reptiles from? Yes, they were living in Arctic and Antarctic areas, sometimes in places where we don't see a lot of other cold-blooded groups that we might expect to see in warmer habitats. Mm-hmm. And then one more thing on the behavioral note, one that comes up quite a lot, especially for dinosaurs, this has also come up with pterosaurs, 
is growth rate. Yep, yep, yep. We can look at the growth signals in the bones of these animals, particularly like leg bones. And we can also, in some cases, just look at baby skeletons to juveniles to young adults to adults. And there have been tons of studies that have found that dinosaurs and pterosaurs were fast growers. Yep. Which is another thing that is commonly associated with high metabolism, active lifestyles, warm-blooded animals like mammals and birds. Puberty-type growth pattern is a very high-octane way to grow up. Yeah, you you grow up fast, get to your full size, reach adulthood. There have been studies that have noted a lot of dinosaurs and pterosaurs show very fast growth rates similar to what we might see in birds and mammals. There have even been some studies that have specifically pointed out that these growth patterns in dinosaurs aren't necessarily related to the size of the species. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're seeing these. So if this is a reliable indicator of warm-bloodedness, of high body temperatures and high metabolism, it isn't just the big ones, Mm -hmm. which comes up specifically when researchers are trying to say this isn't just gigantothermy. It isn't just that the big ones manage to do this because they're big and they have a lot of heat. This is something we see across this group. The small ones seem to be doing whatever the big ones are doing as well. Yes. And then finally, and sort of most uh, newsworthily a lot (laughs) of the time, and most excitingly uh, these days, is there is molecular evidence for high body temperatures in ancient animals. Typically, this is isotopes. Yes. We can sample teeth or bone in at least one study, eggshell. Oh, right. I think we talked about that one uh, in the news. Usually looking at oxygen or carbon isotopes, the ratio of these isotopes in body tissues can correlate to the temperature of those tissues. Yep, yep. So this has been uh, referred to as a paleothermometer. (laughs) So where you can kind of take the temperature of these bones by reading these chemical signatures. Which is pretty cool. This has been done with tons of... This has been done with dinosaurs, pterosaurs. Uh, it's been There was at least one study that did it with mosasaurs. Uh, I believe also with early synapsids. Often finding evidence of higher body temperatures. Yep, uh, yep. These paleothermometers have been used to indicate higher temperatures in dinosaurs, pterosaurs. That mosasaur study also found it. Usually these will end up resolving a body temperature... Somewhere in between birds, either modern birds or the fossil birds that live alongside whatever you're testing, and, you know, the frogs or lizards or whatever you're looking at in that same environment. Uh, One study that I saw that did it on mosasaurs also made that point about gigantothermy, Mm -hmm. that they were resolving higher temperatures in both the big and small species. Yes. That if this is a reliable indicator of temperature, it's not just the big ones that are doing this. Uh, There was also a study in 2022 that uh, last year that examined evidence of certain proteins in dinosaur tissue. And the proteins that they were specifically looking for are byproducts of the metabolic reactions that tend to be involved in generating heat in endothermic animals. Mm -hmm. The kind Mm -hmm. of stuff we see build up in mammals and birds, looking for signs of that in dinosaurs. And again, finding relatively high proportions of that to say yeah the they seem to be doing the metabolic reactions that would be producing body heat like we see in modern birds and mammals yep yep so there are all sorts of different bits of evidence from anatomy from histology from molecules that can potentially hint at 
higher body temperatures, higher activity, higher metabolism in ancient organisms. As I mentioned at the top, many of these are not considered to be by themselves sure things, uh, but especially a lot of the more recent molecular studies or things that come out with a new suggestion of what might indicate endothermy tend to then have response papers that come out and go, well, here's a potential confounding factor. Yeah. Some of these features are seen in animals that we wouldn't consider to be warm-blooded. A lot of these features can be very varied. We mentioned in the first half of the episode that warm-blooded or having high body temperature isn't a one or the other kind of situation. Yeah. There are animals that have limited endothermy. There are animals that are endothermic under certain conditions, but not all the time. Mm-hmm. There, I've also seen it pointed out in some of these discussions that some of this evidence, like some of the molecular evidence that indicates high body temperatures, might not be able to distinguish between was this a resting body yes. temperature or was are we sampling evidence of an active animal's body temperature? Yep, yep. Are we getting an average, a low end, a high end? It, we might not be able right. to tell. There was that study that looked at eggshell uh, isotopes to get a sense of what was the body temperature of the animal that produced this egg. Like, what yeah. w- what temperature was this eggshell produced in? Yes. Which is a very cool way to get a temperature of an animal because it was produced in the body. Yes. But at the same time, some animals will have ways to warm themselves up when caring for nests or caring for young, like those pythons. So it can be very hard to say with these evidences How sure can we be that this means endothermy? And does this mean that you were warm all of the time? Is this a conditional thing? It can be very difficult to say for sure to link these particular features to particular lifestyles. Absolutely. Well, especially because, like you mentioned in the first section, life has found a bunch of different ways to Mm -hmm. manage heat. So there could be systems similar or completely different from the ones we have around today that are leaving evidence that we just don't know to look for because we don't have an animal doing that today. Right. There is also, of course, the the point that, quote, warm-bloodedness didn't happen in a snap. Nope. There we would expect to see intermediates. We would expect to see examples of organisms that are kind of doing it. Yes. Doing it sometimes, which we see in the world today. There are a bunch of organisms, uh, animal species around today that are pointed at often as potential examples, like some lizards Mm -hmm. or like echidnas, which are weird, that are often pointed at to go, could that be an example of what it may have looked like in a species that wasn't truly fully endothermic, that wasn't fully warm-blooded, but would eventually give rise to warm-blooded descendants? Yes, and... In a situation like that where you're in some middle ground that we may not have a great example of nowadays, it's hard to be able to determine what is and isn't possible for an mm. organism. At, like You'd think that you'd go, okay, but if they're at that temperature, shouldn't you know how fast they should be able to run or active they should be? Right. And it may seem like, you know, like with a machine, a lot of times you can say that. of like, well, if you have this much power at that temperature, your car or computer can do this. But organisms aren't that straightforward. Right. It's actually very hard to say, well, but if they were breathing different and if their heart was doing something that we're not aware, like maybe they could be super fast active animals with a much lower temperature than 
the fast active animals we have around today. Right. We don't know. So it can be very hard to say. Usually these discussions will involve talk of many different evidences pointing in the same direction. Yes, exactly. And indeed, in those four groups that we've talked about, there have been lots of studies showing repeated evidence that they seem to be at least good support for something beyond just regular old, quote, cold-bloodedness. Yeah. Dinosaurs, pterosaurs, marine reptiles, early synapsids. Uh, There is evidence for higher body temperatures, higher metabolisms in a lot of that group. There's also lots of variation. Dinosaurs in particular have received tons of research in this. Uh, It's been noted many times that dinosaurs seem to exhibit lots of adaptations that are consistent with being very active, with having higher body temperatures, molecular stuff, behavioral stuff. It is considered pretty widely that at least many dinosaurs were probably something like warm-blooded like we would think of today. But there's also a lot... Different groups are different. Yes. Some groups show very consistent... Like the groups that are closely related to birds, you know, theropods near birds, tend to very consistently resolve evidence of having higher body temperatures, being more active. But other groups are sometimes more slow-growing. There was a study we talked about not too long ago that noted that the distribution of sauropods seems to avoid the polar regions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that one 2022 study that looked at the proteins, their results actually, they based on their proteins, which this was, this was that one study and mm-hmm. it was challenged as these studies often are, but their results actually resolved certain dinosaur groups as ectothermic. Ooh, like yeah. some ornithischians, like ceratopsians and stegosaurs were coming out as more similar to like crocs and lizards and stuff. Interesting. So there seems, which is not at all surprising, that yeah. there would be a variety of life strategies among dinosaurs, because of course there would be. a hugely diverse group. This is a major group. They were all over the world. So there is reason to think that dinosaurs, at least some along the tree, that dinosaurs, at least certain groups at certain times, exhibited a lot of features we would expect from warm-blooded animals. Pterosaurs, uh, ichthyosaurs and mosasaurs, early synapsids. These are lineages where warm-bloodedness, endothermy, seems to be a trend to some degree. Yeah, and it, it's it's been something that just has built over recent decades. Mm-hmm. As it just, like you said, more and more things keeps seeming to point at least in that direction. Yes. You know, maybe not directly in for sure indicators, but pointing more in that direction and not away from it. So we just now have a body of evidence that leans in the direction of something at least comparable to yes. a warm a warm bodiedness. So though these groups were not just classic cold-blooded animals they were doing a variety of different things all of this has implications of course for the questions of the evolution of endothermy the evolution of these warm-blooded strategies specifically questions about when they've this has happened and how many times this has happened yeah how often have these adaptations convergently shown up we talked earlier about fish regional endothermy in fish it shows up in several different lineages of unrelated fish. This is something that seems to have evolved several times. 
all those groups that this seems to have shown up in are often large-bodied, open-water species that tend to be active hunters and are often long-distance migrators. Yep, yep, yep. These may be features that... Either these are life strategies that are made possible <laughs> by endothermic adaptations, or these are drivers for that. If you start to develop adaptations for more active hunting, now there's a selective pressure for these adaptations to keep your body warm and stable in temperature. And as so often is the case, those can feed back into one another. Absolutely, they can. One allows you to do more of the other, then the other one becomes the limiting factor, so that produces that to go further so fish have developed this many times if those groups of marine reptiles are indeed warm-blooded as evidence uh often seems to suggest that's uh, ichthyosaurs plesiosaurs and mosasaurs are three different lineages of reptiles yep. that's potentially a few more origins of this life strategy all of which may be related to the move into the water mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that that again may be a selective pressure for being able to live in the water where it can often be cold. But then also they all have tuna-shaped bodies. So you're yes. living these lifestyles like those fish that we've seen do this. You're shaped like our warm fish. So it should <laughs> win. It should win. It, so it sure would make you, sense. You can be a warm fish too. <laughs> and then there's birds and mammals. Obviously birds and mammals evolved to be war the, the quintessential warm-blooded animals. Exactly when that happened has been a subject of many uh, discussions. There have been some studies that have indicated that true endothermy, like the proper warm-blooded, was something that showed up quite late in both lineages. Yeah. There have been some studies, like that inner ear study we mentioned, that study pointed to evidence suggesting that that was something... It, it was, endothermy really didn't show up until pretty close to mammals. Mm -hmm. There have been studies that have indicated that most dinosaurs weren't warm-blooded like we'd expect birds. And in fact, some ancient birds might not have been. It may be something that really showed up in our modern lineage of birds. But then again, there are other studies that point to different evidences that suggest that much earlier synapsids were endothermic, that this yes, was yes. something that showed up much earlier in the lineage. There are studies that, like we said, have indicated true endothermy across lots of dinosaurs, even in early archosaurs, outside of dinosaurs, that this is something that may have shown up quite a bit earlier. Mm -hmm. So there has been lots of back and forth on where do we see this show up, which is confounded by the fact that these are large groups with lots of diversity and lots of variation among them. There have been a number of studies that have suggested that true endothermy might have, in both birds and mammals, been linked to small bodies. Yeah. Uh, this is a thing we've talked about with birds, that the lineage leading to birds experiences miniaturization. They become very small. Mammals also do a very similar thing, that some have suggested that having very small bodies necessitated the ability to maintain high body temperatures, to maintain these active lifestyles, and that that may have been like the final straw for now you need to be high temperature and stable in order to be a little bird or a little mammal. Yes. And that, that may have been a key step in the evolution of endothermy. Yeah, because you lose all those benefits of the inertial uh, thermal regulation that we talked about. Right. You, you have the opposite problem. Exactly. Now. now you can lose heat. Very Like a mouse can die of, of heat loss much quicker than us 
just because it loses heat so much faster. Yes. And if you were a f- active animal and then got small, you either have to start acting like a lizard again, <laughs> or you <laughs> need to get better at managing your heat. Yes. So there's been tons of research into where does true endothermy show up? Where do these different strategies show up along these lineages? There is no clear answer uh, on these. And again, there's lots of variation. There are lots of living organisms that have been pointed to to say, yeah, are echidnas an example of what sort of proto-endotherm synapsids would have looked like? Are there lizards today, like varanids or certain other lizards, that might be a good example of what like early archosaurs may have been like? Not fully cold-blooded, but also maybe not... Uh, all the way warm-blooded like we see in birds. Yes, yes. And there's been lots of discussion about what drives this. And the fact that it's shown up so many times means that there's probably lots of different answers to that question. Yep, yep. Each group might have be drawing different benefits from it compared to another. Now, this brings us to another interesting question that has come up in the studies of the evolution of endothermy, which is the thought that endothermy might not be a one-way street. Mm -hmm. That it may have happened over time that warm-blooded animals have given rise to descendants who were not warm-blooded. Yep. The fact that some early archosaurs, the ancestors of dinosaurs and pterosaurs, have evidence, uh, you know, upright bodies, active lifestyles, high growth rates, some of the things we expect to see in warm-blooded animals, that has led some people to suggest that archosaurs as a whole group might ancestrally be warmer animals, more more endothermic, in which case dinosaurs and pterosaurs wouldn't have evolved it separately. They both inherited it from the same ancestor. Yes, yes. But it raises questions about crocs. Yep. <laughs> because crocs also evolved from those ancestors, and crocs are not warm-blooded. No. That would suggest that crocs and other, like, phytosaurs mm-hmm. are lumped in here, that these might be lineages that lost endothermy, that went from warm-blooded to cold-blooded over time. Uh, To support this idea, some people have pointed out certain croc features that are very similar to what you see in warm-blooded animals, features of the respiratory system and the circulatory system, which could be you have those because you're closely related to these animals that then took it a step further. But in this view, could also be lingering features yes. from warmer ancestors. And crocs are very efficient ectotherms. Mm-hmm. Like They are very good at maintaining their blood flow and heating up in the sun surprisingly quickly for such a large reptile. They are very efficient at it. They're still not producing their own heat, but they manage the heat in their environment very, very well. Yeah. So that could be that they had lingering systems that made that are from a... A more highly managed thermoregulation yes. <laughs> ancestor. So a lot of studies historically have looked at, you know, when within dinosaurs does this show up? Did this show up multiple times in dinosaurs? Are pterosaurs a independent origin of endothermy? But some have pointed at, well, if early archosaurs were warm-blooded, then this might just be a feature of this whole group, and it means crocs are the weird ones. Yes. Or if there were some dinosaurs that were less warm-blooded style, that that might be a reversal to something like that. And at least some studies have gone even farther than that. There was a study, for example, from 2021 that I looked at that pointed out not only that 
there's potential evidence in early archosaurs in the Triassic for warm-bloodedness, but that some of those evidences that we link to endothermy have been identified in even earlier sauropsids, so the reptile line, and synapsids, the mammal line, as far back as the Permian and Carboniferous. Yep. And if those are true indicators of warm-blooded lifestyles, they are proposing the possibility that endothermy is something ancestral to amniotes. <laughs> that reptiles and mammals, their both lineages started off more like warm-blooded animals than cold-blooded. And if that's the case, it would mean, number one that birds and mammals aren't convergent mm. warm-blooded animals, <laughs> that they are both part of a lineage, that they inherited it from their ancestors. They did point out that there are certain similarities in the endothermic reactions in birds and mammals that could potentially support this. That makes sense, yeah. It would also mean that all of our cold-blooded reptiles are reversals. Yes, that have lost it. That have lost that warm-bloodedness that lizards, snakes, turtles, etc. have gone back from there. All of this is... Now, again, that was a study from two years ago. Yes. Uh, and this is all evidence that is continuing to come to light. All of that is to say, on the question of when did endothermy evolve, we do not have a solid answer to that question. Nope. It is a very difficult feature of life to nail down in the fossil record. Uh, it is something that is so variable, even in life that we have today, that it makes it very difficult for us to be able to point at any particular ancient groups and say, this is exactly the thermoregulatory strategy that this group of animals was using. Yes. Well, and it's very easy to get tripped up in that unidirectional evolutionary mindset that endothermy is the end goal, that right. that's where you end up, but... We have tons of evidence and tons of groups that show that, no, you can come back from it and reverse it. So if that's the case, then we could have groups that go in and out of endothermy potentially. Right. Well, it could be that all amniotes have always just been a variety of some of you are warmer, some of you are cooler, some of you are kind of going, but you're heterothermic, you're going back and forth like amniotes tend to be today. Exactly. So it, it might be a much easier gradient to move along then we have typically or, or or want to draw that hard line. Yeah, how much are we getting tripped up on our dichotomy? Exactly. On the way, going all the way back to the start of the episode, this notion of cold-blooded versus warm-blooded and overlooking the fact that there is just so much in between there. Yes, and like if we do find out that it was a fairly late addition to mammals and birds, that would show that it is not a necessary thing to be a mammal or bird. Right. Even though we consider it such a characteristic thing of those groups. Right. Well, like, for example, the the special tissue that mm -hmm. I mentioned in mammals, the brown adipose tissue that is thought to be really important for heat generation, only placental mammals have that. Yeah. Marsupials and monotremes do not have that. That's a specialization in one lineage of mammals. So it, it is an incredibly important aspect of life, but it is also very difficult to nail down actually how important it is for each group yeah <laughs> like being keeping yourself warm or not might not be as critical or it might be much easier to adjust i guess i should say in different groups yeah based on what's happening or where they're living or what they're needing at that time so if if someone asks were 
dinosaurs and synapsids and early seropsids, were they warm-blooded or cold-blooded? Uh, the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is, there's a lot of factors that go into that. It's, it's a fascinating, this is one of those topics that is much like the herbivores episode, mm-hmm. 173, a very fundamental piece of living organisms and lifestyles which makes it extremely important and also extremely variable. Yeah. But, uh, well, let's stop talking about it. (laughs) That has been a whole bunch of discussion. This has been really cool. Before we officially wrap up our full discussion, there is one more thing to do. So we're going to stick on a related topic for just a little bit longer. We have a patron question. One of the benefits that our patrons on Patreon can receive is the ability to submit questions for us to answer here on the podcast. Will... What question have we today? Our question is from Mauricio, who says, Seeing as how we're finding more and more archosaurs with protofeathers and some type of fuzz, do you guys think that these features are ancestral to more basal forms or something that evolved multiple times in the lineages of dinosaurs and pterosaurs independently? That's a good question. It's a question that's come up on the podcast in discussions before, and it is very related to this topic of endothermy. Extremely. Uh, Feathers and fuzz is something that is often pointed at to say, yeah, a lot of dinosaurs are feathery, a lot of pterosaurs are fuzzy. That's another thing we see a lot in endothermic animals, mammals Mm -hmm. and birds. And there has been this question of how far back do feathers go? So a quick general overview True feathers are known from several lineages of dinosaurs, all closely related to each other. There are also what are considered proto-feathers, so simpler feathers, earlier forms of feathers, widespread across certain groups of theropods, uh, predominantly in this one major lineage called Coelurosaurian theropods, which includes birds, dromaeosaurs, ornithomimosaurs, oviraptorsaurs, tyrannosaurs, and so on. That is a whole corner of the dinosaur family tree that is very confidently pointed out to say they had feathers. Yes. Those are feathers within that group. There's also Sayuramimus, which is another theropod that might be in that group, or it might be next to that group, <laughs> or it might be somewhere else. So potentially another theropod with feathery structures that could be a little farther out from that group, which might indicate another earlier origin, although the placement of Sayuramimus has gone back and forth. There are also filament-like structures, feather-like things, in a handful of other non-theropod dinosaurs. So, other side of the dinosaur family tree, Colindodromius and Tianyulong are both early branching ornithischians that have some kind of filaments on them that some have pointed at and say, those look kind of like feathers, Mm -hmm. and others have said those look like feather-like structures that may be an independent feature. Uh, Notably, those two dinosaurs are not closely related to each other. Yeah. They're both basal ornithischians, but they're not. They're different lineages. And also Psittacosaurus. There is a specimen with those bristles coming off the tails, which, again, some have said that looks a lot like feathers, and others have said that looks maybe more like uh, some of the bristles we see in certain modern birds Mm -hmm. that seem to be scales, the modified scales rather than true feathers yes so whether or not these are all feathers if they're all feathers if they're all based on the same ancestral structure that means that feathers are ancestral to dinosaurs yes. that the earliest dinosaurs had feathery things and everyone else inherited them 
They could also be independent origins of similar structures. And then, of course, pterosaurs have their pycnofibers, which are hair-like structures. Again, there have been some studies that have pointed at them and go, look at these features. Those are feathers. And there have been other studies that have pointed and gone, well, actually, it looks like it might be a slightly different thing. So once again, if those are truly the same structure as feathers, that means that fuzz goes all the way back to the earliest archosaurs. Mm -hmm. And once again, raises interesting questions about crocs. Yep. Did you miss it? Was it just ornithodirons that evolved those? Or did your ancestors have fuzz and crocs went into the water and stopped being fuzzy? Yes. So far... Uh, as far as I know, and I, I did a, a look over the literature again, there are no Triassic feathers or feather-like structures known. Yep. Uh, which means the earliest members of dinosaurs, pterosaurs, those archosaur groups, we don't have evidence of whether or not they had any sort of feathery or bristle-like structures, which would really be a nice thing to find because yep. that would be very handy. So right now the question is, number one, are these different fuzzy structures related to each other or are they just similar modifications of scales? Yes. And if they are or are not related to each other, when did they show up? Mm -hmm. When is the earliest example of these? So to get to Mauricio's question, uh, do we think that this is something that originated independently or is ancestral? I, uh, yeah, no, I do not That's have, the question. I <laughs> that's the big question. enough insight to really weigh in. I definitely could see it being a situation where maybe they are all using a similar pathway. Yeah. To make these like, like maybe there's a type of scale type of scale that archosaurs have that yep. is easy to modify in this way. Exactly. So that maybe it's maybe their ancestor was not fuzzy themselves, but had those scales and it is just very easy through adaptation to turn those into feathery hair-ish things. Yeah. And that the croc line e either showed up after the croc line split, or the croc line just never developed their scales into that. It could also be something, uh, going with the theme of this episode, that is related to body temperature exactly. and activity. And that as these animals evolved more endothermy, more homeoth, more warm-blooded tendencies, there was a driving pressure to develop some sort of insulation. That being said, I also would not be at all surprised if we someday discover like a early early archosaur that has fuzz and that that's kind yeah. of the i'd believe it absolutely that's kind of the thing that makes this such a tough question is at least to my eyes both situations make an equal amount of sense to me right now of like mm -hmm. all these fuzzy things it would make tons of sense for those to be ancestral you know to some kind of quill kind of hair like scale in the early ancestor that then diversified and got selected upon to make all these different shapes, but a lot of them are very different. So I also could completely believe that some of these are just convergent and look real similar. Cause we find that with other things where it's, you look so surprisingly similar, but it actually turns out that you both got here separately. Yeah. So I, I would not be grossly surprised if either shook out to be the truth. And, and we just need that evidence that will, Show us which one makes the most sense. Yep. So for now, uh, if you're a paleo artist and you're drawing ancient archosaurs, uh, take your pick. Yep. Yep. You, you, fuzz or no fuzz. Yeah. Uh, up to you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Mauricio, for that question. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you to our requesters for this episode. Yes. I loved this topic. I've been looking forward to doing this kind of discussion for a long time. This was a cool one. Uh, it's a very cool discussion to get to have. 
is a warm one. It is also it is a warm one. <laughs> it is it is whatever it needs to be. <laughs> hey everybody, uh, go check out the blog post. Every episode has a blog post on our website with links and pictures for those those of you who want to dive deeper. There is a link down in the episode description. Also down in the episode description is a link to the submission form for the end of the year Q&A. At the end of the year, we will be doing a big question and answer uh, recording, answering as many questions as we can get through. So go ahead and submit your question now. The form closes on December 10th, so don't miss the deadline. Also, we have our Patreon giveaway uh, coming up, dude, getting closer and closer at the uh, in January when we do our seven-year live stream at the end of the month, we'll announce the winners. So if you're not a patron and you want to be uh, eligible to win some prizes, uh, become a patron before the end of the year. Yes, yes. Once again, thanks to all of our requesters. If you'd like to request an episode topic, there is a submission form for doing that on our website, linked down in the episode description. Thank you to all of our patrons. Thank you especially to our top tier patrons, Sarah May, Danielle the Bug Lover, and Robert Mart. We greatly appreciate your support. Yes, thank you so much. We release episodes every fortnight. Uh, that has been true for a long, long time. It continues to be true. That is our homeostasis. That is our, we are, we are epis, hom- homeo-episodic. <laughs> we are. Uh, uh, homeo-releasal. Homeo, yeah. <laughs> uh, fortnightly new episodes. The next one, uh, two weeks from the release of this episode, episode 180. Yeah. Uh, coming up real quick on the last episode of the year. That, mm-hmm. that won't be it, but we're getting pretty close. It's getting near. This has been a lot of discussion. I I am, I can feel that endothermy. Yes. Uh, now. <laughs> this, it's, a, it's a warm room. Because we have to turn and the AC off. My, my body is attempting evaporative cooling <laughs> and it's not working. It's just, it's not, it's not making me more comfortable. Nope. It's, it's, it's having the opposite. Yep. The opposite effect. I think about that all the time with things like fevers and sweat of like, I know that you're doing this for my own good, but I hate it. I I know you think this is helping. Yes, I understand. (laughs) I get it. But also, could we not? Could could you? This is I have to sit in this chair and I'm having a hard time. (laughs) Everybody go cool out. Uh, We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.